Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Leon. Excited to have you on the show. We've been talking for many years now. I am really excited to share your journey. For those who don't know you yet, could you share yourself? Yeah, thanks, Jeremy, for having me. Uh, good to be on the show. In short about myself, I'm an investor and operator between Asia and Europe. And my story started back in 2013 uh, when I went to Russia next to my college work to build fashion e-commerce platform uh, La Moda over there. Scaled it and then in 2015 uh, moved over to Indonesia, first as an operator with Rocket, uh, with Food Panda primarily and Zalora. Then for a few years spent uh, time in, in venture capital with different firms investing in Southeast Asia, uh, but also have gotten exposure to the Middle East region and the Silicon Valley. And then thereafter, spent most of my time fully with uh, Kajora Capital, one of the larger VC firms from, from Southeast Asia. Um, there I um, launched a $30 million early stage fund uh, in partnership with SBI Holdings. Now, currently, I'm a, a director at Regal Capital. We are a sort of multi-stage investor in Southeast Asia and India. And at the same time, a head of corporate development at, uh, at Wingcopter. Amazing. How did you get started in technology and startups? I believe it was a combination of emerging markets plus growth, which we certainly see in technology. So I just like a fast-paced environment and see opportunities to build uh, sustainable businesses. Yeah, that intersection really excited me and that brought me in the first step to, to Moscow and then uh, secondly down to uh, Southeast Asia, to, to Jakarta since 2015. So I've been now on the ground for... Uh, uh, yeah, more or less seven and a half years between, uh, I mean, most of my time in Asia, actually. Yeah, and how did you move from Europe to Southeast Asia? Mm. So at one point when I was in Russia, when you are in a market in general, you would might want to ask yourself, is, is that a market I, I, I double down on? And, and double down on means you learn the language, you embed yourself deeper in the market, or for whatever reasons, you might decide to explore other opportunities in, in other regions. And uh, for me, in, in 2015, it came to a point that probably that region where I was in might not be the, the easiest to operate as an entrepreneur mid to long term. And therefore, I decided to use the learnings that I gathered uh, over there and apply it to a, a Southeast Asia. So I was very glad for to be given the opportunity back then to move to Indonesia and build companies over here. Any fun stories about what was it like being an operator in your first few years in Southeast Asia? Yeah, I was going to say, what are the wins and losses that, or, or, or failures that I experienced? Definitely one of the, the failures is during my time as an operator. So when I just came down to Indonesia, our task was to scale Food Panda back in 2015. Food Panda, a marketplace uh, for restaurant, connecting restaurants with consumers in, in urban cities in, uh, in, in Southeast Asia and beyond. It was modeled in typical rocket internet strategy after Grubhub and DoorDash in emerging markets. And um, the, the key difference is in, the, in markets like Indonesia and other really developing countries, you need to build out your own last mile delivery solution in order to enable restaurants. So without having solved the last mile, you're not able to solve the online acquisition of customers for your delivery platform. 
And this is something which was very tricky for Rocket Internet, for, for Food Panda to do, because essentially your riders utilize very well in lunchtime, at dinner time, but in between you will have many, many operational difficulties in that. So long story short, at the same time, uh, Gojek started to hit the market back in 2015. It was a time where stadiums were filled with uh, drivers excited to join the platform. And it became quite uh, apparent that in order to solve the food vertical, so to say, the first thing that you need to solve for is the last mile mobility. And, and this is something that Gojek was, was able to execute on in a in a very impressive manner. So back then, um, if you ask me, how, how was the start in Indonesia? The start in Indonesia was um, a six-month fight against someone that was too strong for you. So it also had uh, its ups and downs. Um, um, restructuring teams and similar is never an easy exercise. But at the end of the day, there's many learnings that, that came out of that period and uh, also how I evolved in my professional career. It's interesting, right, because this mobility space and the right connection between riders, users and merchants is a really tricky three-sided marketplace. I'm so curious, like, what would be some learnings about that three-sided marketplace? Do you think it's, it makes sense? Do you think it's too complicated or do you think it makes sense but you have to play very carefully? How would you think about that? I think the very big lesson from the region that we see is Grab versus Gojek scaling strategy. Back in 2016, 2017, there was a, the key difference was Gojek decided to commit to Indonesia and double down on the core market. And what they had, their thesis was, hey, look, we are launching new verticals. We will offer a more compelling value proposition to the end customer. And with this fully integrated marketplace across verticals, I'm going to be able to keep that customer in my ecosystem. And therefore, I will be able to always outbeat, outcompete uh, Grab in Indonesia. Whereas Grab's strategy was, look, we have the mobility use case, we have started, uh, we, we do have the food use case, and those are significant when it comes to their total addressable market sizes across Southeast Asia. So before I do too many verticals, I rather focus on the core ones and I scale them across the region. And clearly it worked better as at least in, in ter- because the, the key was you go after the addressable market sizes first and then be able to raise more capital, et cetera. Regardless of that, that's a key lesson, know if you scale horizontally or vertically, but at the same time, marketplaces work. But the question is, how have been the economics when I entered the market? So how much did I pay out the drivers and how much I was willing to subsidize these uh, consumer facing? So now the big, 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 big task is that to see, okay, how big will this actually become once I reduce my uh, subsidies, once I hike up my commissions on food? I mean, we're seeing commission rates 40 plus being paid on, on, on those platforms. So it's, it's now going to be, a, a, let's say, the fat of the steak is being cut and let's see how much will remain. But the right to be there is, for, is there for sure. And I think what's interesting is that these giants have obviously conquered their various you know, core markets as well as their core verticals. But I think there's a lot of questions in people's head, like, are they really strong or are they relatively fragile? I think there's a lot of different startups now that we meet them and they say, like, my job is to disrupt Grab or Gojek slash Tokopedia, right? So how do you think about that perspective about their fundamentals in the future? Yeah, so let's split this into two. The first part is disrupt the disruptor, what you said. I want to disrupt Grab or similar. We are now in an interesting time. Because capital markets are down. Many employees that, or that, or, or also in private markets, we have seen many down rounds. So many employees that have shares as part of uh, ESOP programs are now coming to a realization that 
what used to be a maybe significant amount of money now all of a sudden got much less. So this is one of the key drivers that kicks off the next wave of uh, entrepreneurship. And those are the ones that have built, scaled, seen without having an a, a economic or commercial interest to stay there for the long term. And they will subsequently become and understand something that the big coloss was not able to do. Because steering a ship of tens of thousands of people is, is, is a very different beast. You're not agile. I mean, remaining agile at scale is very tough. Yeah. I think what's interesting, obviously been embedded in the Indonesia and Southeast Asia ecosystem for quite some time. What have you seen have been the trends that has been there over the past 10 years from your perspective? I mean, obviously one has been the rise of Grab and Gojek. And I think many people outside, you know, Southeast Asia would think of Grab and Gojek as, you know, the most visible, I guess, folks in the Southeast Asia tech space. What else have you seen over this time period? I think Rocket Internet was very big for a time period, and now it's uh, less big, I think, from my perspective in Southeast Asia. How would you think about that? Yeah, no matter what metrics you would choose right now, it has changed significantly compared to 10 years ago across, across all of them. When it comes down to the amount of VC funds available, the amount of access that we see in the market, uh, liquidity events at local stock exchanges, but also the um, situation of the markets per se, as in the improvement of infra investment in infrastructure, the investments in infrastructure pay off already for some businesses, especially in supply chain and logistics. We're seeing uh, increased connectivity across the region. We're seeing a continuous uh, rise in GDP if you're looking at the 10-year period. So, I mean, the region continued to further show additional points that highlight the relevancy and the excitement also for the global capital markets. And I think that's why I'm very optimistic about, about the region. Yeah, you t I mean, that's perhaps one element that's really key. So, I mean, the macros have, have improved. Uh, the second really key is we are, we are also seeing Southeast Asia gets closer also with India. The markets are very similar. The average urban consumer in Jakarta, somewhere downtown South Jakarta, is not very similar from the average urban consumer somewhere in Mumbai. And that applies also for the ones that may, might be in the smaller villages in Indonesia, in the Lampungs. In the Indian Lampungs, the, it's, it's, it's similar. So the macroeconomic, in terms of GDP per capita, etc., we're seeing that those markets just come closer together. And this is uh, very uh, visible in the amount of Indian founders that are part of the, uh, in the Southeast Asian ecosystem. Uh, which is great because more diversity uh, usually produces uh, a better outcomes. So in a nutshell, that's probably significant changes on the ecosystem. I'm right now in Europe, so I speak a, quite a bit also with investors uh, looking more into the region. And obviously, with a population of 2.3 billion between India and Southeast Asia, with now in Indonesia, we're seeing really, really healthy quarter-on-quarter -quarter GDP, uh, GDP growth rate. So it's getting more of recognition on the global, global stage. Whereas two years ago, institutional investors said, hey, look, I will deploy in funds in Europe that have exposure in Asia, and this is, this is how I cover the region. Now with their second fund of fund vehicle, they might already be start looking into committing really into vehicles that sit in the region, that create real operational value from the early stage to growth stage to possible liquidity events. This is different compared to 10 years ago. Yeah, and what's interesting is that there's a fund approach that you're talking about, right? Which is, I think, looking at trends across Southeast Asia and India. I think you mentioned about how there are not only market similarities and trend similarities, but there are also founders in terms of the migration of flows across you know, both regions. Could you share more about how you think about investing across these two geographies? Like, is it synergistic because, you know, or is it tough to do because they're totally different countries, different regions, a lot of travel? 
So how do you think about that? Yeah, it's not easy to execute. I mean, um, we see examples of Southeast Asian companies that try to crack India and have not been very much successful, to put it mildly. And at the same time, we're seeing the same from Indian companies looking to expand to Southeast Asia, especially Indonesia here. So this is the main connection, India and Indonesia. And the reason is that the Everyone's starting to learn right now. It's not just you take that product, you launch it in your market, you hire some commercial people, and then you just scale, basically. They understand that there are still, while some nuances are very similar, other elements of, of the equation really need to be localized. And that's not that easy. And there's countless ex examples for that, for instance, in the social commerce space. So an Indian uh, social commerce unicorn that expanded to Indonesia And then, for instance, has uh, really optimized on um, getting lots of merchants on the platform, so producers of fashion at wholesale price. And there was no curation of inventory whatsoever, but the pure fixation of merchant and inventory acquisition uh, targets. And understanding how to curate and, and, and who to partner with and how to manage your operations, how to manage returns, also on the product side. So, so there's many, many things that really make the cases, albeit similar, still also unique. And, and this is something that's not easy to solve. I mean, it's not only not easy, but also I, I think there was this hot trend, I think, in 2020 and 2021, where a lot of Indian founders moving Southeast Asia to build and to some extent, not really vice versa, I think not very many Southeast Asian founders went to India to build. And I think that's kind of reverse. I think we see that in 2022. Who do you think is going to succeed, I guess? Is it like, do you think there are going to be companies are able to win both India and Southeast Asia? Or do you think those are like two different markets that they are just going to dominate each thing and you're just looking at the trends that are in both markets to invest in with the thesis? I would say the next five to 10 years will tell. But, but here's the thing. This whole concept of Southeast Asia and India or, or India and Indonesia already exists long before venture capital. So, and this is uh, uh, very uh, visible in the movie industry. If you guess, many of the biggest movie production houses in Indonesia are in fact run and founded by uh, entrepreneurs of uh, Indian origin, second, third generation immigrants. And the reason is, funnily, because in India there's a thriving Bollywood industry and they have essentially taken many of the, some of those concepts, they have localized it to Indonesia and essentially became a huge success. And now many of the largest media production houses are run from based on that strategy. It continues now on the tech side. What I can say for now is that we're very confident on building synergies between those markets, but are yet to see whether it's really one consolidated, both markets play, or whether there's also mergers uh, between those markets or else that remains to be seen. And I think the part where it remains to be seen over the next 10 years seems to be the mantra of all VCs. The learning cycle for whatever you believe or say on a podcast or tweet, you know, it's 10 years, which is very different from being an operator, right? Which is whatever you build, you launch today, you learn straight away whether it's going to work or not. So I'm just kind of curious, you've done both sides of it, right? Being an you know, operator and executive in you know, a fast growth startups across multiple categories. And also be a VC. What are the pros and cons of both roles? Because I think a lot of founders want to be investors and a lot of investors want to be founders, right? You know, in terms of like, you know, the operator mm. versus building versus investing side. What would you say are the pros and cons from your perspective? Yeah, let's look at it if you were binary, yeah? So you have to choose for one or the other. On VC side, what are pros? You learn much more about many markets. Exposure is definitely interesting. 
Secondly, you learn the instruments of raising fundraising, term sheet negotiations, uh, fund SHA document uh, negotiations, etc. Uh, how to close round, the structuring, etc. Thirdly, you also get to network a lot with people from from different industries. So you don't just it's not just a learning, but also a networking effect. And uh, I believe in the power of network that you build. So I think uh, doing this for VC is definitely a, a good plus. So that's that's on the, on the plus side. On the negative side, it depends now what entry level you're looking at. Let's say if you're looking at analyst, associate, maybe also VP level. The thing is, you get lots of exposure. You learn a lot, but the economic interest might not be aligned with the things that you put into the firm. Eventually, yeah, you realize VC is a long-term game, not just in the way that you treat your investment, but also in the way that you can uh, commercialize your career. Yeah, so that's something you need to take into account. Secondly, yeah, and this is then down to you. You sit by the sidelines. I mean, you can support, you can do, you can support on fund, primarily fundraising is what you do support a lot on. I mean, what, what do you do mostly? You do fundraising, you do on case-by-case basis hiring, you do on case-by-case basis some, some form of partnerships or portfolio. You're just at the sideline. You're not steering the wheel. So that's maybe on the VC side. On the operator side, it is a nice feeling to see, to just look at your data studio or whatever and see this is the business that is growing each day and this is the customer reviews and feedback. If you know that you build this from scratch, it's just... It's just a feeling that the, the people that build companies and, and and it's great fun. I mean, the ones that haven't, it's a, not a shame. Everyone can start any time in their in their life, but this feeling of build, seeing something grow and and the impact of the decisions that you make on the business is a different feeling. So no VC, uh, in my view, no VC uh, work can can replicate that. But at the same time, as a VC, you can be entrepreneurial. But this is then you need to build your firm from scratch. <laughs> that's a different case. <laughs> but um, and then back to operators. So, so that's one, the entrepreneurial feeling. Two, yeah, it's then also, I, I generally, VC, yes, you network a lot, but it's also a lot of professional network. So the team, it's, it's also a lot of lone, lonely jobs sometimes. You sit at your desk, you do your research, you, you sometimes you speak with founders, but it's all very professionally. I believe that it's harder to replicate the elements of company culture and, and bonding and, and, and similar in a VC firm than it is in a um, company setting. But that might also be due that in, in what stage of the cycle you're in, in as a VC firm. Yeah, so, so that's probably on the pro side. On the con side, well, uh, I don't know, thirdly, and that's important, you have all your eggs in one basket. So, I mean, should you be having uh, equity interest in the company that you work with? and it goes well, obviously, it's a nice opportunity for you. On the other hand side, being an operator also limits yourself to one industry to some degree. So you, spe- you, you become more specialized. So you would need to make the decision if you want to, want to do that. So that's a little bit uh, my view here on pros and cons. And how would you help someone understand, like, you know, because, you know, I think what you're sharing is like a pros and cons, right? But how does someone figure out whether they, they actually like it or not? Should they just take the job on the other side of it? Or how would you advise them to discover which one works out for them? Mm, yeah, I mean, if you're looking for entry level, or let's say you just graduated recently and you don't really know yet in what direction you would want to go, the best way is to do internships and try and dip your toes in the water. 
And this can be internships, this can be talking to people in the industry, this can be speaking to people on LinkedIn that you give good context on why you're reaching out to them, what you're expecting out of building this relationship, and how you can maybe also perhaps contribute to their professional career. There's many ways that that you can prepare yourself to, to dip the toes in the water. What's interesting is obviously you've done both sides of the table. I think there's always this question, right? It's like, do you have to be an operator to be a VC? And of course, you know, I think the research goes both ways, right? Some people, some papers are saying, yes, it helps. Some people say it doesn't. How do you think it plays out for you personally? Mm. I mean, it's funny you bring this up. I just saw a statistic from Europe from last week. The share of v people in partners in VC firms with finance background is more than half. This is how much as in a VC should, should have been an operator prior, where you see that a VC industry, which is larger than Southeast Asia, in fact, is still finance oriented. At the end of the day, I believe in diversity. You cannot just have operators to VC and not the financial, very fine financial expertise and vice versa. Only with a diverse team with different backgrounds, those bring the best results that are uncorrelated to, to, to any market. And I think and in this context yeah, of a diverse decision-making, I believe an operator can um, show empathy with a founder. I, I believe that's, that's one of the really core capabilities because if you've been through things, there's just a different level that you talk to, talk to founders. Could you share a little bit more about, from your perspective, empathy for founders, right, from the VC perspective? I think it's tough. From a VC perspective, you're seeing thousands of founders come true. You want to say no to most of them. Frankly, as a founder, I've also met lots of VCs that display any empathy for me, I think, in my situation. So I'm still kind of curious from your perspective. You know, I think every VC says they want to be having founder empathy. But I think if you ask most operators, I don't think they see a lot of that from the VC perspective. So it does feel like there's a mismatch between what people say they do versus what they actually uh, deliver or maybe what gets received. So what do you think is that discrepancy or what do you think is that difference from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, founder empathy is to be shown throughout the entire process. It's also with every single founder interaction that you have, that you show understanding for situation and respect. But also then in the interactions with, with the founders, empathy is, is key. And I try to manage it with founders of the way that, that I really do it is, I try not to, five years ago, meet every day five or six different founders and let's say screen the market like crazy. So I I just feel that this way of venture capital is not the way that I believe VC works. It's not like, hey, speak to like thousand companies and, and and then curate the funnel and have a very like analytical mindset on it. But it's really the way that I do it is I choose a few projects that I do, maybe also just an idea then bring co-founding team together and then we go. I think about more, uh, not that I look at my inbound deal flow, but I look more as in, hey, based on the current ecosystems and assets that I have, what could be complementary and possibly synergistic to to the portfolio that I have and thereby just scale much faster or, or be more efficient. And um, thereby with this mindset, I limit the interactions that I have. And then if I do have a deeper founder interactions, then those are very significant, significant. So calls at least on a weekly basis and lots of also other initiatives we work on together. From your perspective as well, could you share with us about a time that you have been brave? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what, what I was really say is when I was brave is when I jumped into 
the venture capital industry. So I shared earlier about my time with Food Panda. I just arrived in Indonesia from almost North Pole in Russia down to the tropical Indonesia. And I had this uh, roller coaster ride with Food Panda. And then about one year later, I was uh, just sitting in the plane and, and, and told now to invest for uh, global founders capital in Southeast Asia. And um, I had, haven't had any clue on, on valuation, on term sheets, on, on any of these things um, and uh, was really thrown in the water. And I feel even though I didn't know, I was just brave enough to commit to this challenge because I believe uh, this mindset of going in the water and seeing if you can swim is a very, very, very important quality to have. And this is why I feel I was brave that I have done that, taken that challenge. And it brought me to where I am today. So I'm very grateful for uh, having been able to go through that back then. What was your reason behind making that switch from the operator to VC perspective, from your personal perspective? Why did you want yeah. to do it? Yeah, I mean, let's, let's face it. I mean, I was like... Uh, <laughs> 23 and you work and you go to the warehouse each day somewhere in the outskirts of Jakarta and you really, I mean, it's heavy, it's heavy work, which I also like and I enjoy it. But then if you were given the opportunity to explore venture capital side and do investments, and I mean, it was hard to say no to that. So <laughs> I got to be honest. So, so for me, it was a little bit run by accident. It's not that I applied or something. I just got a call one day and then I just said, okay, I'm going to come to London for a week and then let's go. It was a bit of run, run into venture capital by accident. But by now, I really stay on the intersection. And also the way, given that Regal Capital is still quite new on the market, it's also very entrepreneurial itself. Because building a VC firm is, is, is a completely different ballgame than, than, than building a startup also. <laughs> Let's talk about that, right? So what's it like to build a VC fund? Very few folks have been operators, very few, even fewer folks are VCs, and even fewer folks building an, an operator and building a VC fund. So what's so hard about it, people are going to ask. Yeah, let's put it this way. Broadly speaking, what makes it so hard is the high entry barriers to get a fund up and running, uh, at least in Southeast Asia still. And these entry barriers are because you have to do a lot of documentation, it takes about three to six months with a team of at least five full-time people. So you can imagine the financial resources. Then you would need to set up uh, structures and similar. So there goes another... 100K, 150, 200K, depending on the setup, advisory. And then you have all the uh, investment you need to do to, to raise your fund. Provided you have a track record and you have access and you, you know, all of this uh, is, uh, we, we assume as a given. But then you can assume that the cost to fundraise a new VC firm, and if you're looking at about 10, 20 million, it's, it's going to be a, a bit of money. Yeah. Also, if you were to raise this with small checks, it's going to take a lot of your time also. So, the, the reason what makes it so difficult is because very few people have the means and, and, and resources to really enter, enter that industry. It's quite, it's quite tough. Yeah, when you launch a new VC firm, the first thing that you got to do as part of your documentation is going deeper in your strategy, your positioning, the next fund uh, that you're planning to raise, uh, who are the, the possible interested investors you want to talk to globally, what are the global macro tra trends that drive uh, investment in the region. Yeah, uh, right now, in Europe, uh, commodity prices grow like crazy. Next year, early next year, uh, FMCG prices will follow. So it's going to be, and we have, we're going to have massive, massive inflation. So obviously, you're looking at those global tailwinds where you can go into and pitch an exciting growth story in a diversification of your global asset portfolio strategy. So, so that's in a nutshell what 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 needs to be done in order to set up a firm. 
and and what is the focus also when you do that? Part of it is like you're you're talking about raising money from the limited partners, obviously, and you're also talking about building like a duo funnel. So, what would you say are the things that you need to build within the fund itself as a company? Yeah, obviously, you need to show some. De- if you want to raise a raise a fund, what you need to show, you need to show your team. You need to show your investment strategy, some details on why the market is growing. You need to show the details on the fund and the, the structure and the commercial details of the fund. And you also would need to show an overview on the verticals that you cover, but also then some exemplary deal flow. Having said that, though, you don't want to spend too much time or too much of your time on deal flow because it might be that in six months when you close the fund, some of these opportunities are already gone. So you got to find a bit of a balance between how much of my time I dedicate to deal flow in a stage where my fund is not ready yet. That changes once the fund is launched. So, you know, for people who want to build a VC fund, what advice would you give to them when they set out to do so? It was actually the same that I asked myself like a few years ago. I want to get exposure to as many companies and projects as possible, but I don't have money to invest some millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. So I asked myself, hey, how can I build myself direct equity positions in companies without essentially having having the financial resources to do investments at scale? And so what I did is I started to do advisory. So I started to raise money for companies. I raised, I started with a $1.5 million seed round in, in Germany. I continued with a $42 million uh, Series A extension from Wingcopter. And then sometimes those advisory relationships also turn to something more significant. The key here really is it gives you track record. So if you're looking to build a VC firm, the thing, first thing that you need to solve for is, okay, do I have relevant track record to convince investors to trust me their money and believe I'm going to provide uh, generate good returns for them? And you need to show to them that through advisory or through your personal investments or else you do have the capacity to uh, to do so. That's a tricky part, right? How do you balance your time to do so? Do you take on lots of different roles or do you take on a few of them? How do you balance all these advisory roles and obviously staying an operator and as a VC, so on and so forth? Yeah. yeah, so I don't do any advisory right now, but this is how I started. Right now, I really focus on my two projects and I'm able to do this because there's many synergies. At the end of the day, I'm just meeting so many people <laughs> and, and oftentimes one project might, might be more interested for the others and, and, and so on. So, so this is why that, that setup works. Generally, if you do advisory or others, see what you can contribute at the end of the day. Is it fundraising or else? But also taking a little bit zoom out of that view, the key message really is if you want to launch your own VC firm, think about your own track record. And if you don't have your own track investment track record yet, thinking about you know, creative ways to build it next to investing. And one of it is advisory. And this is how I did it. And you know, obviously, you're talking about like investor track record, etc. So how should folks think about their own track record? Is it a function of good deals, bad deals? Is it a track record in terms of founder reputation? How do you think about investment track record? This is a very fuzzy term, right? Yeah, so you look at all the money that you have invested in your personal capacity or on behalf of venture capital VC firms or or else. And um, then you look at the current estimated fair market value of those positions and you see if you have generated uh, returns from your initial investment cost. So the way that you should think about in track record is your multiple on the investment capital, your cash on cash returns, have I given money back? It could be founder MPS. So if you, if you have 
MPS survey or similar and how happy founders are with working with you, you can do that. It can be just founder statements and quotations. So there's quantitative and qualitative metrics you can use in order to better give better perspective on your, on your track record. Awesome. So thank you so much for really kind of sharing so much. Uh, I love to kind of paraphrase the three big themes I got from this conversation. The first is thank you so much for sharing about, I think Southeast Asia is not the historical trends that you've seen as personalities and operator in VC. And of course, the cross-pollination that you see of India as well, and why that's led you to want to put together this thesis around building a VC fund that covers both of these regions. Even though it's to be determined whether it's one player winning both markets or whether it's one player winning each separate region. The second, of course, is thank you for sharing about the operator versus VC career, some of the trade-offs, the benefits, the cons, and also how to go about exploring those two careers. And lastly, thank you so much for sharing your own personal experience about building a VC fund from scratch, which lets you be an operator in terms of building, but building a VC fund instead of a startup. So thank you so much for your advice there. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.